we are in the book of Malachi, uh, talking about how the book of Malachi uh, really uh, paints this picture of a dead faith community. The people in, in Malachi's time, they weren't so much tempted to worship other gods as they just lost hope in, in the promises of the one true God. Uh, and they, as they were struggling through that, Malachi and the Lord was encouraging them, encouraging them to pick up again a living and vibrant faith. And so we're hoping as we go through this series uh, through Lent that we're going to be uh, given a picture or confronted with some things about how maybe our faith, our, our understanding of God and how we practice our faith can go south <laughs> and cause problems. And then hopefully the, the goal is to contrast that with what a living and vibrant orthodoxy looks like uh, so that we as a church can grow in our understanding and grow in our, in our life together and grow in our faith and practice as we worship God together as a church family. So there's this... Uh, this bumper sticker I saw once that said, nobody, it said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> right? I mean, you look at, uh, there's like a secular understanding of that, right? Nobody wants to die, and every, but everybody wants to go to heaven. But there's a Christian understanding of that as well, too. Nobody wants to die to self. And uh, we live in an age in the church where, where people are craving Christian community. Uh, and in, in that, in that deep, deep-seated desire to have true community, there's all kinds of like, you know, experimental versions of how to have community uh, coming together. And some of them are more successful than others. And yet the Bible gives us really clear instructions about how to build uh, vibrant Christian community and how it becomes a blessing to everyone. Families, singles, everybody involved. And that's really at the, at the heart of what this passage is talking about. And so let's, uh, if you would, please, would you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? Uh, this is not out of respect for the reader, who is me. This is out of respect for the speaker, who is God. This is God's word to us. Let's pay uh, careful attention. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? For Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why? Why does he not? Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. And let none, of your, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you uh, even when you are direct. We thank you for speaking truth to us, Lord. Uh, again, in this passage, we see how you are the great physician. And you are a surgeon who is able to diagnose exactly uh, the sin that we suffer with, the sin that we that we sin against each other, against you, against our community. Uh, you say it how it is, Lord, but you say it how it is because your intention is to heal us and to show us something better. So we pray that you would do that, Lord. We pray you would give us not only a vision of the beauty of Christian community, living life together, uh, but even more importantly, you would show us the beauty of Jesus who made that possible through his life and death and resurrection for us. 
Uh, and we pray, Lord, that we would be so grateful for what Jesus has done that we would go ahead and trust you to live our lives the way you call us to, even when it doesn't make any sense to us, so that we might experience the blessing of your wisdom because you always know better than we do. So help us to see that, Lord. Illuminate our minds with your spirit. We pray you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones, which is us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> we used to meet at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and after the 5 o'clock service, we would go raid collectively, like go raid restaurants around San Diego for, for dinner. And this, we used to go up to this unfortunately named uh, Mediterranean restaurant called Spitz up there. They've... <laughs> They've since gone out of business. I can't imagine why. <clears throat> but we would go up to there. And, they, and, and the, one of the, 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 the hallmarks of Spitz restaurant was they had a big back patio we could hang out on. And they had one, the biggest Jenga game I've ever seen. This, it was massive. It was, you know, five or six feet tall. Uh, <clears throat> all the pieces in play. You know the game Jenga. The, the, uh, you know the game Jenga. We just played it at fr a friend's house on, on Saturday night. And I was like, hey. I was going to use this in my sermon. It was like a sign from God to go ahead and, and do that. Anyways, anyway, so we, uh, you know, the point of the game is you pull one block out at a time. And as you pull out, you know, more and more of these foundational building block units of the game, the, the structure becomes more and more unstable, more and more unstable until finally and suddenly the whole thing just collapses, right? Which is the fantastic part of the game. The biggest one, as far as I can tell, is a... 12,000 pieces. It took two weeks to build. It was over 10 feet tall. You can see the video on YouTube where they, where they pull it out and they destroy it. It's fantastic to see the entire structure just collapsing upon itself as it suddenly crashed down. And Why am I telling you about Jenga? Well, the church or the body of Christ, really all of society, also has foundational building blocks called the family. The family is the basic unit, the basic structure uh, of the church all throughout scripture and really for all of society. And uh, the church is a lot like a giant Jenga game. All those family units are together making a solid structure, but as each one becomes taken out or as we take out those family units or as we destroy them in deeper ways or as we, uh, we injure them or hurt them or weaken them, as those family units break down and get taken out, <clears throat> the structure gets more and more uh, unstable until finally and suddenly it can all come crashing down. Uh, and that's really what this passage is all about. Yes, it talks uh, specifically about marriage and about divorce, and that's a huge issue, right? That's a huge covenant issue in the church. Um, and the deep harm that it's caused to women and to children, specifically when that sin enters the picture. But it's about something even deeper than that. It's about how sin affects uh, individual families, yes. But even more than that, how sin affects the whole family of God, the church. Uh, and it's about how pagan ideals of God creep into the church and sneak their way into the worship and the practices of the people of God, creating a dead orthodoxy as people think and start to believe that they can buy God or pay, or pay off or atone for their own sins. Uh, but most of all, this passage presents this sharp contrast between some of the most popular religious ideals in the world uh, that are often mistaken for Christianity and what Christianity actually is. And as we contrast those things together, really the stunning beauty of Christianity about Jesus, about what God has accomplished for us in Christ comes and emerges to the forefront of the picture. And when we see that, uh, when we see what Jesus has really done for us, that's where real worship begins. And that's really the big point of this whole passage is to help us to see that. So that's basic outline of what we're going to do today. The hope in this passage 
is that this picture of a living orthodoxy centered on Jesus and the community that he is building comes out. Uh, and so the first big lesson in this passage is this, that sin destroys the whole body. Sin destroys the whole body. So first, what's, what is going on in this passage? What is happening? There's two sins that are interrelated. They're, they're different, but they're related and they're causing some of the same damage, right? The first one, in verse 11, it says that the men of Israel are marrying the daughter of a foreign god, which means basically the men of Israel are marrying outside of God's people and they're taking wives for themselves from other faiths from outside the community of God. Now listen, it's important to understand this is not saying, uh, this is not, this is speaking against interfaith marriages, not interracial marriages. All the way back to Moses and Zipporah, Moses uh, had an interracial marriage. All through the Bible, there's instances of interracial marriages where their faith was the same, but the problem came in when the faith was different, when they married outside of Israel's God and they created these family units where one, one partner was worshiping the one true God, <clears throat> the other partner was worshiping a false God, and, and, and the conflict that, that arose from that, right? And even worse than that was the reasons why they were doing it. We, in, in the ancient world, Marriage wasn't as much about romantic love as it is in our world today, right? You are all free to like follow your hearts and marry whoever like gives you the, you know, the most butterflies. In the ancient world, people married primarily to improve their station in life, to, uh, uh, to increase uh, their business, to form bonds between families. And so think about it. Judah had come back to the land they were impoverished. They were surrounded by other cultures that were better off than they were. And so what they were doing was <clears throat> they were marrying outside of Israel so that they could form family bonds with wealthy and powerful families so they could get themselves up and out of poverty and put themselves in a better position, which tells you what? What was their primary concern? Their primary concern was advancing themselves in this life and in the process, it betrayed the fact that they are putting God third or last. Uh, <clears throat> and second, the second sin happening is the, verse 14, divorcing the wife of their youth to do so. Uh, I'm going to give some disclaimers as we go through here, some caveats. <clears throat> there are times even in, in, Christian, in Christian life, <clears throat> where couples sin against, against each other, where the damage becomes so great uh, and things become so broken that they're not, you can't repair them. And so there are certain, uh, there are certain uh, situations, <clears throat> as it were, in the Bible where divorce happens and divorce is allowed. It's never encouraged, but it's allowed, right? And so uh, I don't want, when we read this passage, the, you know, the first thing that we are contend to do is if you've gone through an awful divorce to start hating on yourself or uh, for us to become judgmental of those who may have gone through an awful divorce. This is talking about a specific kind of thing, about divorce that happens um, when we would call uh, what we might call, you know, in our modern language, irreconcilable differences or uh, I fell out of love. Uh, what a commentator calls this aversion marriage, where the men had just decided they just didn't like their wives anymore and they divorced them. In other words, from a spiritual aspect, right at the point where God had set them up for their wives to be that agent that would sharpen them and sanctify them and grow them in their faith and grow them in their ability to die to self and burn their selfishness off. Right at that point, they got rid of the very thing that God had given them, had blessed them with to accomplish that. And that was the wife of their youth, right? The, the wife uh, that they had been married to since very young in Israel. Obviously, people were married very young. And worse than that, oftentimes the men were divorcing that woman in order to marry 
outside the faith so that they could improve their position and advance themselves in this life. Uh, and so what is, this, what is this picture? It's a picture of these layers of sin. Like, a, like, like it's a picture of sin like throwing a, a rock into a pond and the, and the ripples just start going out from there in concentric circles, right? Obviously, it sins against God, right? God says in this passage that he is the witness in the marriage ceremony, and that's true. One of my favorite parts of our, pre, when we merit, do marriage counseling or premarital counseling with people is to point out that in Christian wedding ceremonies, there's two sets of vows. You first, you make vows to God as the witness of the marriage ceremony, and then second, you make vows to each other. So that, you know, she should love and to cherish in, in sickness and health till death do his part. Those are vows you're making to God. And then all the flowery vows where you promise to be the perfect spouse that you write to each other. You know, that, those are the vows you make to each other, right? The ones that you're going to break next week and then come to post-marital counseling. And we're going to work through those things together, right? Uh, those, are the, those are the horizontal vows, the vertical vows, two sets of vows. It's a sin against God because God is the witness in that worship or in that, in that covenant, he's literally the father of the bride, and you're sinning, we sin against God. In either of those, either of those cases, right, it's a sin against women. Think, even in today's world, where women have been, uh, you know, granted many rights, not all, even in today's world, women usually take the, you know, the, the brunt of divorce. Oftentimes, they end up on the bad side of it. Imagine in, the, in, you know, in 2,000 years ago, in ancient Near East, where women had n almost no legal protection. To divorce the, the wife of your youth, she would have almost no options but to go back in shame to her father's house. Uh, uh, it put them in, a, in a, an incredibly difficult uh, social and financial position. Uh, and th that was divorce, but the, the whole idea of all the Israelite men running outside of the church to marry the girls outside the church, what's that's a picture of? What happens to the girls inside the church? We came from, Nisa and I, we came from, we <laughs> came from this massive church, right? 14,000 person church, and everybody goes to this church to get married because you know that's where all the singles are, right? That's why I went to the church. I was like, I know God wants me to be married, and so therefore I need to be doing everything in my power to help God, like, pull this off for me. So, where do I need to go? I need to go to X church uh, because that's where all the girls are. Nisa said the same thing. She, you know, just like, I, I need to come, I need to come to this church because I want to be married, and, and, uh, She's a little wiser and been a Christian longer. So she was like, now where am I? I'm here. Where am I going to find a Christian at this church? So she went to the altar call ministry because that's where like the hardcore Christians were in altar call ministry. And then so, we, and praise God, we met and we got married. But you know what we saw all around us? We saw all these single people who were like passing up uh, and turning down and refusing to date other like Christian men and women who were perfectly suitable candidates because they had a vibrant faith. They loved Jesus. They were turning them down and they were one-upping, one just waiting for that perfect version of astronaut slash physicist slash chef slash supermodel slash, you know, whatever, that expectation that they had for who their spouse had to be. All these worldly expectations of what your spouse has to be, nobody cared about solid Christian character. And you know what we saw? We saw all these people like running through their 30s and then into their 40s, passing over and over and over, not getting married. Uh, and then what happens then? Then they have, you know, then they have no, they've, they've foregone the biblical model of building community and they try to build their own communities together and all kinds of chaos ensues. Uh, Anyways, <laughs> you know, marrying outside the faith, it also dilutes your family and your commitment together. How can, if you are committed to worshiping and serving the one true God and you marry someone who's committed 
to worshiping and serving another God, whether that God is career or whether that God is another named God, how do you put those things together? I mean, marriage depends not only on your own relationship, it also depends on the community of faith that you belong in, supporting you and knowing you and loving you. And it depends on having pastoral support, having the church be there to support you and counsel you and help you through the hard times. Because trust me, brothers and sisters, the hard times are coming. Can I get an amen? And it's a sin against kids. It's a sin against kids. How, how you know, the, the big, one of the big purposes of marriage, God says it straight up. What was God expecting? What was God seeking in these godly unions? He was seeking godly offspring, meaning he was, he was looking for strong Christian families, strong believing families, to be formed so that children could be raised in, in a stable home uh, and raised to understand the ways of the Lord uh, and, and, and be supplied, to be given a place where they have the opportunity from a young age to see that Jesus uh, and, and the way of God is more beautiful and more rewarding than any other thing the world's going to throw at them as soon as they become old enough to understand the world. Uh, and obviously divorce just rips that apart, but even intermarriage with another faith. How can you raise a kid in the Lord if you have one parent who believes it and one parent who doesn't? The kid's always going to wonder, which one is it? Which one is it? I have a friend, interfaith marriage, great people, Muslim and a Christian, but they're ideal. You know, even the, the Christian woman is like, I'm not, you know, we, we're not going to, you know, press either one on them. We're going to let them grow up and decide on their own which faith they want to follow. But if you're a Christian, if you understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that only through him can people come to the Father, how could you say that about your own kids? How could you say that? The one thing that keeps me awake at night that I'm afraid of is that my kids will walk away from the faith. That is the, that is the biggest fear I have. And so I'm grateful, praise God, that he's given us these structures that we can raise our children in, not just my family at my house, but this family. You know, when we baptize kids, we all make vows that we will together raise our kids in the Lord. But we all are taking a responsibility in raising our children of this church to know Jesus and to love him. What a fantastic benefit that is. Uh, and yet it's not just a sin against God. It's not just a sin against women. It's not just a sin against kids. It is a sin against the whole church. Uh, verse 11. God says, for Judah, in doing these things, Judah has profaned the sanctuary. Right? Another word for temple. And we know in the New Testament that the temple of God is the church. The people of the church are uh, the individual building blocks, the living stones which God is creating, uh, that is building his temple, right? The dwelling place of God. And yet even in the Old Testament, there are several places where the sanctuary uh, is, a, is symbolic for the whole people of God at that time. And this is one of them. It's saying that this sin, not, it just doesn't sin against God, against women, against children, but it sins and profanes and weakens and destroys the entire body. Why? Because every time we pull one of those blocks out, every time we weaken one of those blocks, every time we, either by destroying it altogether through divorce, either by diluting it through intermarriage, even by uh, destroying the integrity of those blocks, by changing the meaning of marriage. Eventually, you can only take so many of those blocks out before the whole structure collapses in upon itself. There's a whole book, scholarly academic study called How the West Was Really Lost, not the Wild West, but the Western Church. And we all think that the church and, and public, you know, the Christianity as, uh, the, you know, the, 
the religion of the West was destroyed by academic attack on the Bible. That's the narrative. But this book makes a strong case that the only way that could have possibly happened was to undermine the building blocks and the strength of the church in the families of the church first. And then that prepared the way for criti biblical criticism and academic attacks to, de to destroy uh, the structure overall. It makes a strong, strong case for that. So look all that to say, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. These things aren't just, these are manifestations of individual selfishness, desiring you know, what, what we want over and above what God says is good for us and our community and, and for sure, but those the sins aren't localized. They're not compartmentalized. They radiate out like ripples into the pond. Uh, and if you have a bunch of people throwing rocks in the pond and the ripples spreading out and the waves start colliding into one another, you get really rough seas really fast and people lose their way. And if that wasn't bad enough, not to depress everyone this morning. If it was bad enough, the sin that they were committing was bad enough. The way they were trying to deal with it was even worse. How were they trying to deal with it? They were trying to buy off God. They were trying to buy off God. And so the second big lesson we understand from this passage is that we can't buy God. You cannot buy God. There's a, uh, one of the most like shocking scenes in The Godfather, if you've seen that movie, is uh, Little Mike's Baptism, where Michael Corleone is the Godfather, and he's, as the priest is asking him like to make these vows, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And Michael says, I do. And then the camera's you know, camera scene switches, and it shows this series of hits that they had arranged to coincide with the baptism so that they would have an alibi. And yet at the same time, he's making vows. He's going through his, you know, these relig this religious ceremony and making these vows to God. At the very same time, his men are eliminating their competition in these gra graphic scenes, right? And you think that, you see that, and you're like, oh, it's, it's, he's just a total hypocrite, right? But if you, you know, he didn't need to be there at all. Right? If you had asked him, if you had asked men like him, were they Christian? Were they Catholic? Did they believe the things they were saying? They would say absolutely yes. They would totally believe that they were, even as they were ordering the murders of all of their, you know, all of their competition. How is that possible? It's because they're, the way they thought about their religious belief, the way they thought about Christianity, the way they thought about how to practice their faith was basically this. If you perform the rites and you perform the ceremonies correctly, if you do the baptisms, if you go to penance, if you take the Lord's Supper, uh, if you show up to church faithfully every Sunday, if you worship God, if you do your quiet time, if you have your Bible study, the list goes on and on. If you do the ritual, then God is somehow obligated to, to, to forgive you or obligated to answer your prayer. You've done your part, now God's obligated to do his part. It's the personal moral condition or the moral standing of, of the person didn't matter so much as just performing the ceremonies or the rites in the right way and therefore obligating God to grant you your wish, more or less. And the ancient world had this idea. This is an ancient belief. The ancient world had this down to a science. How do we see it? Listen to verse 13, 14. Uh, or listen to 13. Uh, and the second thing you do, what's the second thing they do? They cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and with groaning. Where do we see that in the Old Testament? We don't see it in the Exodus depictions of the temple. We don't see it in the instructions for the priesthood. You know where we see it? We see it in the epic battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where the prophets of this false god, right? You know, you remember the story, 
<clears throat> a light, all Israel is, 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 has, has abandoned the worship of God. They're following the God. Uh, they're following the God Baal. And, and so Elijah says, let's have a contest. You build a fire, a, you know, pile some wood over here. I'll pile up some wood. You pray to Baal to light that on fire, to light the wood on fire. Uh, and whoever, like, you know, whoever God does it for them wins, right? And so the prophets of Baal began dancing and screaming and shouting and weeping and when wailing and gnashing their teeth and putting on this huge emotional display for Baal, uh, and nothing happens. And so Elijah starts taunting them, this best, best part of the book of Kings. I'm not going to go into what he says to them, but go read it. <laughs> so funny. Um, the word of God is so funny and deep. Uh, and Elijah then, of course, says, douse it with water like three or four times. And then he says, God, light the fire. Lightning comes down, blows it up, and everyone sees it, that God is the one true God, right? Doesn't that sound great? Which we could just do that here, you know, when somebody's like doubting the existence of God or you're in an evangelistic conversation and you're like, Lord, light that car on fire. Boom. You know, it seems like you could just close the deal so easy. If you would do that, right? You know? <sighs> Anyways, what's the point? <laughs> the point is, that was a normative part of pagan worship. Everybody in the ancient world sacrificed animals. Oftentimes, people will, you know, uh, argue against Christianity by saying, or ar argue against, you know, Israel and being God's people, they're saying, everybody sacrificed animals. Well, that's true, of course. When Noah came off the ark, they had animal sacrifice as a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus. And over time, it became corrupted so that people were still sacrificing animals, but they were corrupted it into something very different than what the Old Testament talked about. And so in pagan religion, you had, uh, you know, the understanding that if you put on this huge emotional display of, you know, of, of sorrow and suffering for your sins, that you would obligate God to listen to you. And then even worse, the one thing that gods couldn't do in the pagan mind was feed themselves. I know that sounds kind of bizarre to us, but in the greater, you know, culture of that time, people believed that gods couldn't feed themselves. That's what sacrifice was. And so that's where we had them. That's where we had God. If we did the sacrifice, if you did the sacrifice and you did it in the right way, then God was now morally obligated to come through with what you asked, with your wish, with your prayer, to forgive whatever sin you did. And so that's what religion was. It was just back and forth. People believed uh, that they could obligate God, they could manipulate him by just going through the right rituals. Uh, it had much, it had not much to do with the moral condition or the standing of the person or their commitment to God. Uh, you can live however, the, however you want, you know, Monday through Saturday, you show up on Sunday and punch the clock and you do the rituals and you're good. If you made that altar sacrifice correctly, uh, if you did the ritual correctly, if you kept up on your morning devotion time correctly, if you did the volunteer work correctly, you had done your part, and now God was obligated to do his part of fulfilling whatever you wanted him to fulfill. Uh, it's, the, you know, it's the oldest prayer in the world, right? What's the oldest prayer in the world? God, if you get me out of this one, I promise... I will fill in the blank. It's an, it's an arrangement, right? God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Or more positively, you, know, you can say, you know, I've done all these things. And if you do them, or you live your religious life, and you do your religious stuff, and the motive behind it is really so that God will then do what you want. However, like, and I know, I get it. I do it too. I got, you know, I sanctify it, make it all look super holy about why, you know, God should bless my job and 
God, God should bless, you know, this relationship and God should bless this and God should give me that. And, but the point is I make the decision of what God is supposed to do for me. I go through the ritual and I think I obligate him. Uh, it's the oldest prayer in the work. It's, it's the oldest religious belief in the work world. And so let's step back from that for a second and look at what's happening. From Malachi 1 all the way through Malachi 2 now. The whole, whole communities of believers whose real interest in life is advancing themselves in this world. Underlying real belief, their real interest, their real motive is advancing themselves in this world. God is a distant third. Uh, and worship practices become corrupted into ways to manipulate and obligate God to do your will, which leaves you frustrated and brokenhearted when God doesn't do what you want. You know, when God doesn't come through with the job that you thought he was going to give you or doesn't come through, uh, you know, the relationship didn't work out exactly and as wonderfully and smoothly as you thought it was going to, uh, or the goals that you had set didn't come through, whatever it is that you had like proscribed God must do for you didn't work out. You can hear, just like in that first chapter, the Israelites are saying, when God says, I have loved you, Israelites are like, how have you loved us? You haven't loved us. I did my part and you didn't come through. And you do that long enough, the disillusionment starts to set in. And eventually you just start going through the motions, not expecting much, feeling cold and spiritually dead. And inside there's that smoldering, festering question, does God really love me? This is a picture. I've, I've titled this sermon series, Autopsy of a Dead Orthodoxy. And that is a perfect picture. It's the recipe for a dead orthodoxy, for a dead faith, for a dead church. And tragically, it is the picture of much of American Christianity today. That's what people think of often, too often, when they think of Christianity. That that's what it's all about. That God, Christianity is basically about God helping us to uh, to be successful in this life in one way or another. And that if we do the right things and if we're good people and we do what God asks of us, then we can count on him to come through and do the things that we want him to do. Uh, and it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. God has... It just doesn't work like that. Oftentimes, the trouble in your life is there because God has given it to you as a gift to grow. And God has no intention of taking those means of growth out of your life. Uh, and so listen, praise God, everything I've just described is completely antithetical to what Christianity really is. You know what's tragic is so many people reject Christianity based on a false version of Christianity. So many people that they have that idea of Christianity and they're like, no thanks. Uh, but Christianity is so much more than that. It is so much more vibrant, so much more beautiful than that. When we peel back all those layers and we get to the core of what it really is. And what it is is, or let me put it like this. You cannot buy God because God had to buy us. <laughs> let me put it like that. We cannot purchase God's favor because God had to purchase us out of the slavery of sin and death and hell. If we revisit... Uh, I think, was it last week I talked about Laodicean Christian Fellowship versus the First Reformed Church of Ephesus, right? Okay. If you go back to, if we went to uh, Laodicean Community Fellowship and we went into there and we asked, what is 
what is the single most, what is the single biggest problem facing mankind? You might get a lot of answers. You might say, uh, maybe a lot of people would say the pandemic now. Maybe people would say racism. Maybe people would say justice issues. Maybe people would say environmental concerns. Maybe people would say global warming. Maybe people would say economy. Uh, maybe people would say Marxism, you know, people like a lot of things people might say is the biggest problem facing mankind. But, um, they'd all be wrong. The biggest problem facing mankind is so big. Uh, it is so overwhelming. It is so unavoidable. Uh, no amount of money, no amount of human resource, no amount of ingenuity, no amount of time, uh, no amount of anything that we can do on our own power can overcome it. It's something that only God can overcome. Uh, it's something that God has overcome, and that something is death. And so at the most fundamental level, now Chris, I'm not saying Christianity does not speak to how to live successfully in this age. It does. But primarily, on the most fundamental level, Christianity isn't about winning in life as much as it's about victory over death. Everybody's going to die. Like it or not, within 70 years, everybody in this room is going to come face to face with the living God. You're going to come face to face with Jesus and you are going to give an account for what you did and how you lived the life that God gave you. What you did with the breath that he put in your lungs. What you did with the body, with the circumstances, with the gifts, with the resources. How did you live life? And here's the worst part. It's not, the judgment is not on a sliding scale. That's the, that's the other most popular religious ideal in the world, that if my good outweighs my bad, I'm good. If I do 50, if, I, if they put me in the balance and 51% good, 49% bad, I'm in. That's not the percentage. The Bible's clear. The percentage is 100%. Perfect adherence, perfect obedience to the law of God, every day of your life without a single fail. And so that's what you're up against. You know, uh, Jerry Andrews, the pastor of this church, one of the first sermons I heard him preach, he said, if all I need is a little help, well, that makes Jesus a little helper. It's just blasphemous to even say that, right? It's so really... You can't understand the magnitude of what Christianity is really all about. What the, the problem the, the, what that Christianity that Jesus has solved for us until you see the problem, until you come face to face with that reality. You are going to die. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And I, I know a lot of you here are young and you're like, I get it. It's a million miles away. Some of you here are not so young. Some of you here are like me, not so young anymore. Bodies, you know, they're... I'm, first time I went to the, to the doctors and they diagnosed my, my shoulder was bad and it wasn't going to get better. Shocking. Everybody has that doctor's appointment where they say there's something wrong with you that's not going to get better. And that's like the first wake-up call. You're like, it's not going to heal. I'm not going to get better. It's like the very first taste of real death. My body is literally dying. I cannot stop that happening. I'm going to come face to face with God. And I'm going to have to give an answer for my life. And you have two options in front of God. You can either stand trial or be judged based on what you have done. Anybody? How much time do we have? Because I feel like I'm on a roll right now. Man. Preach. <laughs> Scariest verse in the Bible, Romans 2.14. 
it says that, you know, we will be judged by our own conscience, having excused and condemned, basically. There's like a TiVo player, it's like a DVR player running right now, like recording everything you've ever done, everything that you ever thought. And on the judgment day, there's going to be like the jumbo screen on the back wall, right? And, and everything that you've ever not just done, Everything you've thought is going to be played on that screen for everybody to see. That's why that judgment is, judgment is described not as like, you know, people making a defense. It's described as gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is being so angry at God that you, you would, if you could get your hands on him, you would kill him. And, of course, we did. Uh, that's what gnashing of teeth is. Why? Because there's no defense. You're going to be standing in that spot who you really are, not the mask that you put out. Who you really are in your heart is going to be put on display and that is what God's going to judge you on. There's only one other option. And the other option is you can be judged based on what Jesus has done for you. In other words, there's two parts of what Jesus has done for us. First part is what we call uh, his active obedience. It means that Jesus lived his life in, 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 in perfect worship and devotion to God so that he was absolutely sinless. He lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilled all the requirements of the law. Uh, and when we believe in Jesus, meaning when we trust him and his work for our salvation, he gives us credit for all that. So it's like that body of that perfectly righteous life is like credited to you or God clothes you with it. That's the point of that, the gospel reading today. We've been clothed in Christ. God gives you his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees us as perfect and as righteous and as holy, even when we're not. And then, of course, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The cross was our judgment. The judgment that we deserve for our sin, God poured out on Jesus so that we've, that judgment's already been executed. God cannot judge us again for the same crime. We're cleared. And so those are the, those are the two choices that we have. Either we stand before God based on your own merit or stand before God based on what Jesus has done for us. And the crazy part is that this one is like available just for the asking. You don't have to do nothing. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to keep a schedule. You don't have to check off a to-do list. You don't have to like, you know, uh, maintain like, a, you know, a 2.5 GPA in the moral, in the Mosaic law. Uh, nothing like that. It's just, do you trust in Jesus and what he's done for salvation, to solve the problem of death and to give you eternal life, simply for the asking. That's what Christianity is about. And then from that point, once you understand that your biggest problem in life has been solved, and that you have been given a position in an eternal kingdom and you've been given wealth of eternal value and you've been given power that is spiritual all the little power and position and, and wealth and money and, and temporary rusting fading glory of this world starts to fall you start contrast you're like ah. it starts to fall away little by little uh, and you begin to live the way God's called us to live as he begins changing us from the inside out, as we begin to seek the things that are above. Um, and the only thing that we can give him in return is our, is our worship and our praise. And the way God asks us to worship him is by living according to how he's, you know, made life work best in the Bible. And as we do that, 
you know, at first you do it begrudgingly. You're like, all right, I'll give up everything cool in life because God has saved me. <laughs> Truth? All right, fine. <laughs> uh, and then you slowly start realizing all those things you thought were so cool were actually the things that were killing you. And the things that God has commanded are actually the things that produce life and peace and joy and community and everything you wanted out of sin or start becoming. And you're like, man, that's pretty good. It's a good life. It's a good life. Um, it's a good life. And I would say, I would suggest you know, that the Christian life is the best life. It's, it's the most um, rewarding life. Not just in the afterworld, but in here too. By living that way, we can, kind of, we can create the kind of community uh, that gives us security and safety and joy and helps us to experience the realities of the kingdom and the and eternal quality life even now. And when we do that, we can then do what God has called us to do. Stand in contrast to the world. Show the world what Christianity is really like so that when people get burned by the world, when people get burned by those false versions of Christianity, we can provide a place of refuge, a city of refuge for people to come into. And that's what being a witness for Christ is all about. Amen? Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you sent your own son to come to the world and solve the biggest problem we have that we had no hope of solving on our own. And that freed from that, that we can focus our lives on loving you and serving you and your people and that in and through that uh, byproducts of joy and life and peace result and we thank you for this community that you've given us lord we thank you for the the deep friendships and support that we have that we can count on each other uh, and it's all based on the centrality of what you have done for us we don't love each other for what we can get for each other but we are called and we are able to love each other uh, because we're just paying it forward. You have loved us first and called us to love others in your name. And by doing that, you are slowly beginning to shape us into people who are able to love and able to forgive and able to extend grace and able to serve just for the pure joy of loving and serving uh, and forgiving. Because that's who you're creating us to be in Christ Jesus, Lord. So we pray that. That's what we want. We pray that you would rid us of all the foolish ideas of the world, all the little trinkets the world has to offer us, Lord. That you would give us what's needful, that you would help us to be comfortable in this age, uh, but that you would shape us, Lord, to be lights so that we might proclaim you uh, as the most beautiful thing in the universe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.